who do you think you are? Boy, that's a good way to start a sermon, right? Who do you think you are? The good thing is, a preacher in this setting, I can ask that question largely without fear of reprisal. Maybe I'll hear from some of you in the lobby after the service or get a kindly worded email sometime. But who do you think you are? The question implies something about authority. What makes you think you're in charge? Oh, you think you're smarter than everyone else. Who do you think you are to make such claims over me or to tell me how I should live my life? The whole notion of authority is a touchy subject. We regularly hear sad stories of abuses of authority. Generally, our cultural ethos pushes back on authority. We rage against the machine. We celebrate being true to ourselves in a sense where the ultimate authority in our lives is not anything or anyone outside of us, but ourselves and what is happening inside of us. And yet in a world where authority carries such negative connotations, in a world where rejecting and questioning authority is not only normal but celebrated, Jesus forces us to ask questions of what we make of His authority. And so the question from Jesus' opposition at the outset of Luke 20 is basically them asking Him, who do you think you are? And what I'm going to argue from this text, and what I want to ask you as you hear this argument, is to, in a sense, ask these questions of Jesus. Who do you think you are? But what I'm going to argue before you is that we must surrender before the absolute undeniable authority of Jesus. Let me say that again. Surrender before the absolute undeniable authority of Jesus. I invite you to follow along as I read our sermon text beginning in verse 1 of Luke 20 all the way through the end of the chapter and into verse 4, all the way through verse 4 of chapter 21. Follow along as I read. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. 
But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the Lord. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left, no children, and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of the Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows houses, and for pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had, 
to live on. May God bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. So we're going to ask three questions as we navigate through this passage. The first being, what is the problem with Jesus' authority? Previously, Jesus entered the temple in Jerusalem. This was at the end of chapter 19. And he was utterly disgusted by Jewish leaders who were profiteering over pilgrims coming to the temple during the Passover. And they were, they were marking up prices on animals that they were selling for sacrifices. And so where God had called his people to worship him, the religious leaders saw opportunity to profit off the backs of these poor worshipers. And Jesus was absolutely disgusted by it. And so he starts to expel those who are, are making mockery of the temple of God, these chief priests, these scribes, the, uh, these elders. So they confront him now in verse 2 of chapter 20. And they say, tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who is it that gave you this authority? Said another way, they ask him, who do you think you are? And we begin to see the clever wisdom of Jesus as people question his authority. And we'll see this throughout this passage. But he asks them in this first interaction, was the ministry of John the Baptist from God or from man? Now, John the Baptist, you might be familiar, he was this, this prophet who came before Jesus. He's recorded in the earliest parts of the Gospel of Luke, and he was preaching a message of repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, calling all who would hear him to come in faith and enter into the kingdom of God, but to do so through repentance. And it says in verse 1 here that Jesus was preaching the gospel. He was announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God through himself, and he was undoubtedly calling his listeners to repent of their sin and receive forgiveness. This was directly in line with John's ministry. And so the Jewish authorities way back were disgusted with John and were disgusted with his ministry to the point that they ultimately killed him. And yet the people, they clung to John's words, believing him to be a prophet of God. And so now as Jesus' authority is challenged, he asks these leaders, what do you think of John the Baptist? And Jesus had them cornered. They said, if we say he's from heaven, then they'll say, well, why didn't you listen to him? But if they say he's from man, if he's just another religious zealot trying to stir up the people, then the crowds will undoubtedly turn against them because they were captivated by John's message. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. This is in verse 7. And verse 8 tells us, And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And this reveals to us, when we are asking Jesus, Who do you think you are to make such claims upon my life? Who do you think you are to call me to such dramatic change in response to you, in obedience to you, in faithfulness to your word? This is what we're getting at. We're, we want Jesus' power in sickness or in trial when we need him to work the miraculous, the powerful, the great when we're in a bind. But our first impulse when he begins to work in other ways that we do not ask is to say, hey, what are you doing here? I did not sign up for this. We want his power to be exercised at our discretion. Or we want Jesus' message. We want his love for others. We want his promise to be with us. But we don't want his message whenever he tells us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him. 
or when he tells us to prepare even for your family to hate you because you follow me. Said another way, we want his message when it comforts us. We do not want his message so much when it confronts us. But the absolute authority of Jesus is the fullness of both his message and his power. Not leaving us room to pick and choose, but only with the responsibility to humble ourselves before him or to rise up in objection against him. And so ultimately, as we ask the question, what is the problem with Jesus' authority? Well, the problem actually isn't anything with Jesus' authority. It's actually with us or with anyone who would reject his authority. Now, my hope as we continue is to help you see the scope of his authority, his his absolute undeniable authority, and why we can and must trust him. First, see Jesus' authority over his people in verse 9 through 18. Having confounded his accusers, Jesus tells a parable that elaborates on the horrific overreaches of the religious leaders in Israel and how his authority will be reasserted. He tells a parable of a vineyard in these verses that this vineyard was planted by its owner and the owner let tenants manage it while he was away. But from time to time, the owner sent servants to the vineyard. And each time the servants would be beaten and sent away by the tenants. This happened with three different servants. And the owner said, I'll send my son. At least they will respect and honor him. But the tenants said, actually, if we kill him, the vineyard will be ours. This parable is pretty simple to grasp. Throughout her existence, Israel was often illustrated with a vine or a vineyard. God is the owner of the vineyard, the keeper of the vineyard. The tenants were her spiritual leaders, chief priests, scribes, elders, as recorded in this passage. And these tenants, they kept beating servants. These servants are represented are representatives of prophets who were sent. And you could take an illustration of John the Baptist who was just mentioned. John the Baptist was kind of the last in the, in the model or the mold of these Old Testament prophets before Jesus arrived. And what did they do to him? They killed him. So the servants keep beating and sending away prophets sent by God. Now the son of the owner of the vineyard has arrived, and this is Jesus. What, what does Jesus say they will do to the son? They will kill him. So what would the owner of the vineyard do when all of this has happened? Well, verse 16 tells us he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, when they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This quotation that I just read in verse 17 was from back in Psalm 118. King David was first rejected and he was afflicted, he was, yet he was taken and used by God as the cornerstone for building his temple, for building his people. Now Jesus is asserting that a kingdom of far greater scope and a king with far greater reign than even David has arrived on the scene, and their rejection of him will come back on their heads. You see this in verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone... It will crush him. Strange imagery that Jesus is using to describe himself, is it not? William Taylor, a commentator on this, wrote, Verses 17 and 18 contain a combination of Old Testament images of judgment, taken from Psalm 118, from Isaiah 8, from Daniel 2. And the implication is that those who stub their toes on Jesus' claim to be king, those who reject his authority as king, 
They stumble over him and they will be crushed by him. And even referencing examples from the Old Testament, just as King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon had been crushed in their day, the peoples, the nations who rise up and reject Jesus will be crushed in their day. It's at this point that we should just throw out any notions of a feeble Jesus, of a Jesus who has limited power, of a Jesus whose authority is quite small. Ultimately, what this passage and the passages that follow show us is that Jesus, in going to the cross, was either crushed for you and for your sins, or you will be crushed by him in your sin. Do you see in verse 16, go back and look at verse 16, how the owner will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Dear church, did you know all of us who are in Christ, all of us who are Christians today, we are those others who have become the people of God? This helps us understand the work of God throughout biblical history, from the patriarchs in Genesis to the people of Israel in Exodus and beyond, to the prophets sent by God to correct and to care for the people of Israel, all the way to the arrival of Jesus, to the birth and expansion of the church. Jesus has authority over his people, and what? His people are marked by the glad, willing receptivity of his authority. And just as Jesus stands before these Jewish leaders and points out the absurdity of believing that they could co-opt the Jewish faith with no regard for the God of Israel, let us be very careful that we do not try to practice a form of Christianity that is absent of Christ. A Christianity that preaches love for neighbor or ways in which to improve your life and to give you a more peaceful marriage, greater financial freedom, provide a decent framework for understanding the world or politics. If that is all Christianity is, it is of no value if it does not have Jesus Christ and the gospel at the heart, at the center, demanding you die to yourself and follow Jesus, the crucified and risen Lord. Demanding that you submit your life under the authority of His Word. This is one reason we preach the Bible week by week by week. It is a central thing. It is not the only thing that we must do in our worship, but it is the central thing. We are citizens hearing from our King who speaks to us in authority by His Word. I hope when, whether it's myself or others, stand up and preach week by week, you are hearing the arguments of the text presented and applied to you, not the wisdom of, or lack of wisdom of whatever's happening up in here with me. That is the responsibility of the preacher before the church, to preach God's Word week by week. So Jesus asserts His authority over His people, and He further shows His authority over us in verses 19 to 26. Now look what happens. I'll read these verses again. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Him at that very hour, for they perceived that He had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God 
the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. You understand the, te- the tension of Jesus' reli- uh, interactions with the religious leaders, with the scribes and the chief priests. Now consider what else is happening in this, count- in, in this encounter. A denarius was the daily wage of a common laborer, but the emperor's denarii uh, were special, especially created at, at, a, at a mint that was set apart for the emperor. They were noted as his property, and they were special coins that had to be used to pay taxes to Caesar. The front of the coin had Tiberius on it with the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. You might be familiar with this passage, but here's the deal about it. It is not intended, first and foremost, to tell you to be a good citizen or to tell you how to interact with the state and the authorities, civil authorities over us. There's certainly applications and implications that we can pull from that and our responsibilities to pay taxes, our responsibilities to obey the laws of our state and our country and things of that nature. But that's not the main point. Look at verses 24 and 25 again. Jesus says, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So, do you remember the parable of the vineyard? Jesus previously asserted his absolute authority over his people as a corporate people, over Israel, and then saying there's going to be others that come after them. Speaking of the church that would come. And now he's asserting his authority over you and I individually. The point here is just as this coin bears Caesar's image, you as an image bearer of God bear the image of the one who has created you and who has claim and authority over you. So this flies in the face of compartmentalized views of Christianity or of religion. A compartmentalized view is one that says, okay, I have my faith over here, I have my family responsibilities here, I have my job here, I have whatever time I have left for hobbies or, 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 or leisure over here. Jesus is saying that true Christianity, it cannot be compartmentalized. You do not check in and out of it. You do not uh, clock in or out. Rather, Jesus is saying, God, your maker, has complete and total authority over you. So you render to Caesar what is his, and you, just as, just as that coin is Caesar's, you are God's. And this is good news. I had a pastor and a seminary professor once give an illustration of how he bought a new TV. This was a number of years ago. It was supposed to be one of those new high-definition TVs. He had it for about a week when a friend was visiting his home, and his friend asked, hey, what do you think of your new HDTV? And professor said, honestly, I just can't tell the difference really between old standard definition and this new high definition. The friend took a look at it and then looked at the back of the TV. And then he plugged in the HDMI cable that was not plugged in. And the screen then changed and the picture all of a sudden went from standard definition to the bright, vibrant, crisp, high definition. This professor of mine had not plugged in the HDMI cable. 
Perhaps you know Christianity to be important. Maybe you have family history or general agreement with the ethics of Christianity, but you struggle to see its full import upon your life. Your understanding of Christianity will only pop like that high definition, like that cord plugged in. It will only fully make sense. It will only fully look different to you when you understand that the way of following Christ is the way of total surrender under His authority. It doesn't make sense whenever you try to keep Christianity as an a la carte or as a buffet where you pick and choose what you want and leave what you don't. It only makes sense and only has that true power of God whenever you are entirely submitted before the authority and the one who has created you and marked you with His image. See, in this Jesus, in this parable, Jesus answers some of the most fundamental, foundational questions that we could ask of ourselves. Who am I? I'm an image bearer of God. Who do I belong to? You belong to God and to God alone. What is the purpose of my life? It is to live to the glory of God, your creator, your king, and to know that you can trust him and the authority that he exercises over you. So Jesus has authority over his people. He has authority over us. But now look at another claim to authority he makes, namely a claim to authority over death. You see this in verses 27 to 40. Do you remember the old Batman shows? Some of you that are like my age or older might remember these. Not like the newer, grittier, darker ones, but the older ones with, where they wore the bright colors and, and, and like when the bad guys would attack, they'd punch them and it'd say like bam or pow. Or you know, Some of you are recognized, like, like quite, quite impressive. Even when I was like five, six, seven years old and I would watch that with my older brother, I never understood, like one bad guy would attack Batman, and Batman would punch him and kick him and knock him down. Then another bad guy would attack, and he'd punch punch and kick him, and like 10 of them in a row. I'm like, why don't you all attack him at once? It's like you're waiting in single file line. It never made sense to me. Well, these guys coming at Jesus, they're like these bad guys. Not that they could all bring their attacks at Jesus at the same time and overwhelm him, but it's like different guys coming from different angles. Maybe we try this way, we'll get him. Maybe we try this way, we'll get him. Let's try it from this way. And Jesus is just playing like whack-a-mole with all these authorities who would try to come through and, 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 and make claims upon him or, or, or um, trap him in his words. And so now a new objection is brought to him in verse 27. There was a smaller group of people who were called Sadducees. They were a smaller sect within uh, 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 the Jewish faith. And Sadducees, they did not believe in the resurrection. You see that mentioned in verse 27. They didn't believe that God would raise the dead. And terrible pastor pun coming in three, two, one. You can remember Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection because that is actually quite sad, you see, to believe that this is all there is. There you go. Save that one for later. I didn't hear that boo over there. Um, anyway, they give Jesus a fantastical scenario about heaven and a woman who has been married seven different times with, each different, with, with seven husbands who were brothers. And in Jewish law, uh, if, if a husband died and he had a brother who was able and eligible to be married, his brother would be responsible for marrying his wife because they were trying to continue the family bloodline. And so they give this fantastical scenario of seven different men who have, men who have married her, one dies, move on to the next, he dies, move on to the next, he dies. And, and then they basically ask, well, okay, if there's a resurrection, Jesus, who is going to be married to who in, in, in heaven? 
But Jesus responds that there is no marriage in heaven. Now, that's its own story. That's a question that could arise. We don't have time for it, but Jesus is asserting that here. But he says the encounter of Moses with God early in the book of Exodus, where God spoke to Moses in a burning bush, God is announced as the God of Abraham, as the God of Isaac, as the God of Jacob, three patriarchs of Israel. But they had been dead for hundreds of years, and Jesus is saying, though they are dead, they are not wiped out. He is the God of the living. All live to him. Dale Ralph Davis, commentator on this passage, has explained, in Moses' time, some hundreds of years after the deaths of these patriarchs. So this encounter with Moses and God at the burning bush in Exodus 3, this is hundreds of years, literally uh, 500 plus years, maybe 450 to 500 plus years, after the deaths of the last of the patriarchs in Genesis. Yahweh, or God, is saying that the God who stands in relationship to them, though they died long ago, God is in relation with them which means in some way they still exist. They are not non-entities. They have not ceased from existing. God cannot be the God of non-entities. But in fact, if they still exist in relation to God, they will be fodder for the resurrection. See, in Genesis 17, when God promised to Abraham that he assured him to be God to you and to your seed after you. Now, if the eternal God pledges himself to be God to you, That establishes a relation that is as eternal as the God who promised it. Said another way, once God binds himself to be your God, there is no circumstance, there is no opponent, there is nothing that can sever that relationship between the people of God and their God. Even in death, he is the God who holds you and will raise you at the right time. And our Lord Jesus himself is exhibit A of this, is it not? It would be less than a week from this time that this story was told that he would die and that he would be raised as the first fruits of the resurrection. Dear Christian, even in death, he is still the God who holds you and at the right time will raise you to life. Previously, I warned against what William Taylor calls compartmentalized religion or Christianity. Now, as we think about this relationship to the resurrection, I want to warn against skeptical Christianity. One way to push back on the authority of Jesus over us is to question or push back on the miracles that he has seemingly, that that, that he has accomplished or that are claimed that he has accomplished. To minimize the virgin birth, the resurrection, the ascension, the promised return of Jesus, even the power of God to give new birth to sinners dead in their sin, to minimize any of these is to reject the authority of Jesus. You see verses 39 and 40, then some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. This is actually quite similar. If you look back at verse 26, the story of, um, uh, uh, of, of the coin and, and, you know, render to Caesar things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God. Verse 26 And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Why did they reject Jesus in verses 26 and verses 39 to 40? They couldn't reject his wisdom, but they reject his authority. And this is why I am holding up his authority before all of us as something we must be submitted under. 
There's a warning here not to be captivated by the wisdom of God while denying the authority of God. Do you see that? There's a, there's a, there's a warning here not to be captivated by or, 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 or um, attracted to the power or the message of Jesus, but to deny the authority of Jesus over you. And this sums up the question, what is wrong with Jesus' authority? The problem is those who reject it, who do not submit under it. Now, as we ask the question of what is wrong with Jesus' authority, now let's allow Jesus to turn and ask us a question. Why does Jesus have this authority? Look at verse 41. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? This is Jesus speaking now to the crowds. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Okay, what is happening here? Jesus is calling upon a familiar psalm to his audience where there's two figures at play here. The Lord, the God of Israel whom they know and who they profess to worship, that is the Lord. But David, who's writing this, says, this Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So you have the Lord God and you have another figure who David is describing as my Lord, who is seated next to the Lord. And so now Jesus asks them in verse 44, David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? So he's playing on this imagery that they would have of the Messiah who would come, who would be the next king in the line of David. And so Jesus in one sense is saying, I fulfill that messianic kingly line. But how is David calling me his Lord when he was before me? Jesus is saying and standing before the crowds and us, saying, I am the Messiah, the king in the line of David, who will be raised to sit at the right hand of God the Father. What he isn't doing is he is enlarging their view of the Messiah. He's causing them to see, he's helping them to see, as Dale Ralph Davis says, that Jesus is not only from David's seed, but he is David's sovereign. He wants us to see Jesus' human descent to us, as well as his divine status over us. And Jesus, in turning and asking his audience this, he basically asks them, what do you make of me? We could ask 10,000 questions of God and of Jesus and Christianity, but there's really only two that we must ask. Who is he? And when you answer that question, what does that mean for me? This passage reveals that he is both king over his people, and he is God over creation, and he ascended to the right hand of God his Father, where he sits now and reigns. And this is what is so unsettling about what Jesus asserts about his authority. It is unsettling to think of the fact that he is total and absolute in his authority because that forces us to reconcile or to come to grips with things that are perhaps uncomfortable for us to come to grips with. See, as Jesus asserts his absolute total authority over his people, this will either be an insurmountable hurdle that you cannot get over or you refuse to try to get over because you like being the captain of your ship. 
You like being the one that calls the shots. This will either be insurmountable to you, or it will lift the burdens off of your shoulders because you are tired of trying to have everything figured out yourself. You're try, tired of carrying all the burdens that this world thrusts upon you, and you need your Lord to come and lift those off of you that you might be able to breathe again for the first time in a long time. See, the, pa- the whole orientation of this passage changes with Jesus now asking the questions. The question of who do you think you are is no longer directed at Jesus, but now Jesus turns and addresses us and asks, who exactly do you think you are as you stand before your Messiah, who is in fact God in the flesh, your creator, the one who reigns over you, who will return to you one day? And the next question, the final question we ask is, will we mock or will we trust Jesus' authority? He gives interesting illustrations here. If you will mock Jesus' authority, you will participate in a spirituality or religion that likes to be seen as one thing, but in another sense is of no value. You see this in verse 45 and follows. He uses scribes as an example. They like to be seen at the synagogue. They like to be seen dressed nice. They like to be honored by others, celebrated for their long prayers, celebrated for their visible, evident spirituality. And yet in all of this, they are serving themselves and nothing else. And Jesus says in verse 47, they will receive the greater condemnation. And as opposed to these, Jesus references a widow that he sees making an offering Look at verse 2 of chapter 21. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. These small coins combined, not individually, combined, the two of them together, added up to about one-sixty-fourth of a day's wages. And that is all that she has. And Jesus says in verse 3, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. These are two strange stories to follow all that Jesus has taught about his authority. And I think one reason that we have these is that they reveal that to make little of Jesus' authority is to continue with the status quo, to not want to be inconvenienced, to have comfortable religion, to have comfortable Christianity. But one that does not change us, one that does not transform us, one that does not demand things of us that make us more like our Lord. Rather, we are trying to make him who asserts his authority over us more like us. This is one that is easy in smoothness and in appearance, and it is to invite condemnation. This will be crushed when it collides with Jesus, the cornerstone. But the one who has been captivated by the authority of Jesus, they will surrender everything to follow him. This is a life that is entirely changed by him, that is in total surrender under his authority. One whose religion is only there for them whenever they can give to it out of excess, but one whose faith in Christ is there for him that they give all in obedience to him. He owns the calendar. He owns the pocketbook. He owns the relationships. He owns the commitments. He owns the the desires and the goals of our hearts. The one who surrenders everything before Jesus leaves no room for negotiation, leaves no room for attempts to undermine his authority. 
You see, throughout this passage, we've considered the idea that the Jewish authorities asked Jesus when he was teaching at the temple, who do you think you are? But having seen his authority over his people, over us, and over even death, and having seen who he is that he's revealed about himself, the divine one who has died, who was raised, who seated at the right hand of God the Father, the far better question is to not look at Jesus and say, who do you think you are? but to allow him to look at us and say, who do you think you are? And then for him to tell us, come to me and live. Surrender before the absolute, undeniable authority of Jesus.